Hi, I'm May, and I'm gonna start off today by telling you a little story about my family. So, growing up, I knew that my nanny's name was Gloria. Big tick for me. In fact, my nanny's name was Gloria, and my granddad's name was John Senior. But as a child, I discovered the not so secret truth that my granddad John Senior's name actually was Michael. He'd just decided to swap names with his brother because apparently those are the only two names you can pick from if you're Irish. I don't know. But I managed to get considerably far through my life before one day someone just slipped to me that my nanny's real and legal name wasn't Gloria, but Argentina. And I was so shocked. So the grandparents I'd known my whole life as Gloria and John Senior were actually Argentina and Michael. Who were these people? Spies? Well, my family crisis aside, today I'm gonna to be talking about God's glory and kind of like my nanny's name, Gloria. I think that sometimes we can talk about God's glory and not fully know what we're talking about, what it really means. But we're coming to the end of looking at this story on Lazarus and Jesus tells us that actually the whole point of it is God's glory. So we're gonna read from John 11 together, starting from verse 38. And the word's gonna come up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, why not go and grab that? So, verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Father, I want to thank you for this time now to look into your word and what it means for us today. God, I pray that you would be with each of us and be with everyone who's joining in just now, wherever they're at in their home spaces, whoever they're with. God, I pray that you would speak to all of us individually about what your glory means. Amen. So last week, Naomi read the part of the story that it's probably hardest for us to sit in. Jesus' friend died. The people around him are gutted that Jesus didn't get there in time to do anything. Jesus cries with Mary. And as Naomi says, Jesus gives us permission to feel grief. Well, today I get to preach the good news 
the good news for them being that Lazarus is raised to life, but the good news for us, the way greater news, Jesus is raised to life. But crucially, in both of these accounts, you can't have the incredible bit without the really hard bit. The glory comes after the grief. I don't see this lightly. I know that there will be people watching and joining in today that have lost someone recently or are supporting someone else who has. I also don't say this as some sort of universal rule that you can only experience God's glory through grief or that that's what grief is even for. But what I am saying is that this story teaches us how to hope even in the midst of our darkest suffering. And as has already been said the last couple of weeks, we planned this short preaching series before we knew the time we'd be in now and how relevant it would really be. And what this means is that God was in this and he wants us to know how to hope in his glory now. Because the ultimate point of this story isn't Lazarus. The point of this story isn't Lazarus, it's Jesus. We can see that in how much it mirrors the Easter story. It's supposed to lead us to think about his sacrifice, the death, the waiting period, the stone rolled away from the tomb, miraculous triumph over death, people coming to faith as a result. But what does this tell us? It tells us that the actual healing of Lazarus isn't the end goal. It's not the end goal, which should be a relief to us because we are all unhealed in some way. When God heals, it's a miracle and it's fantastic and we praise him for it, but it's not the end goal because ultimately all of us right now will sit in some sort of dissonance. The dissonance between God heals and God hasn't healed X. I know I do. For me, it's God heals. Well, when I was 16, he healed me of headaches that I'd had every day for years that were awful. But God hasn't healed the back pain that I have every day. He heals, but he hasn't healed this thing. This story tells us that we can breathe a sigh of relief, basically. We don't have to have our faith crumble when not everything is healed right now, because God has already promised us that there will be a time when there is no more suffering. But that's not the end goal. That's, that's not the, the main thing we're looking forward to. The end goal is something else. And Jesus doesn't make it obscure either, because verse 40 doesn't read, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see Lazarus healed? This isn't something that he promised to Mary and Martha in their lifetime. Instead it reads, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So what is God's glory? This idea of God's glory might be completely new to you if you're new around church stuff, or maybe you've sung the word glory like a hundred times in worship songs, but you're not sure if you've ever spent time thinking about it. Well, regardless of where you are on the spectrum, it's okay because probably none of us will ever fully get our heads around it. 
but we can dig a little bit deeper and we're going to do that now. So what does the word glory make you think of? It's not a word that we necessarily use that much in everyday life. So maybe it makes you think of expressions like fame and glory. And in fact, in the Oxford Dictionary, it is defined as high renown or honour won by notable achievements, such as to fight and die for the glory of one's nation. That's the first definition it gives. And note that this is using the word glory as it can be applied to people. And the assumption is that it's something you have to earn. On the other hand, the ancient Greek word for glory that is used here in verse 40 is the word doxa. And it literally means that which evokes good opinion, i.e. something that has inherent intrinsic worth. And it corresponds to the Old Testament word for glory from the root kabad, literally meaning to be weighty. So the first thing we learn about God's glory is God's inherent, intrinsic, weighty worth. God doesn't earn his glory. But there's a lot more about this word glory that we can still unpack. The word doxa originated from a word in ancient Greek that can also be translated as belief. And this double meaning can actually still be seen in languages today, like Russian, where slava, which means glory, is used with the meaning of belief in words like pravoslavi, which means orthodoxy or true belief. And the reason why I'm saying all this and probably butchering the pronunciation of several languages right now, so sorry, is that there is something significant about the way these words belief and glory are linked. It means that the glorification of God isn't just a belief. It isn't just an optional extra for us to dwell on as Christians. The glorification of God is belief. It's central to our understanding of God and our faith in action. But it still doesn't tell us fully what it means when we speak about God's glory. One of my all-time favourite passages of scripture is Exodus 33. And I'm going to read a bit from it now because in a relatively small chunk of scripture, there's a lot we can learn about what God's glory actually is. So, I'll get you up to speed. God has just told Moses and the Israelites that they're going on a long journey to the promised land. And Moses is having a momentary leadership freak out, which I think is understandable. So in verse 14, it says, The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest which is pretty amazing. But then it continues. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And then the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name 
the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I've seen people sometimes think of God's glory as equivalent to God's presence because of passages like this one, but there is a difference. Moses is clearly in the presence of God, otherwise how could this conversation be happening? But he still longs to see God's glory. This means that they can't be exactly the same thing. So we need to look closely and see what's going on here. Moses asked to see God's glory and God replies saying he will show him his goodness, his proclamation, his mercy and his grace. So here's my definition of glory. It's the presence of God combined with the visible character of God. And that's a Maymore original, so you can have that one. The presence of God combined with the visible character of God. And as we later read, to even see a glimpse of the fullness and the richness of that, like Moses has to hide behind a rock and have God shield him. So this is serious stuff. And what this means for us is that we can be in the presence of God and not experience his glory. But don't let that make you panic. Many people got to be in Jesus' presence when he was on earth but not experience his full glory. But before Jesus was arrested, he prays for all believers, meaning all of us today as well, in John 17, 24. Jesus prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus wants us to see his glory and he prayed for it. How cool is that? And that means we can definitely experience these glimpses of his glory now. But how? How do we do this? Well, the story of Lazarus points to the answer. We get there through what N.T. Wright calls the unspoken clue of the story in his commentary on the passage. The unspoken clues are prayer and faith. It's unspoken but hinted at through the fact that as far as we read, Jesus doesn't actually pray asking God to heal Lazarus. When he does pray, he instead thanks God that he has already heard him. Remember that at the beginning of this chapter, as Zach described two weeks ago, Jesus hears the news about Lazarus' illness, but waits for two days before setting out to visit his friend. N.T. Wright suggests that in those days between Jesus hearing about Lazarus' illness and his arrival, while he may appeared to have been faffing around or we're not really sure what was happening there, it's surely the case that he was already praying and already putting his faith in God completely. And this would make sense of the Jesus we know, right? The man who was constantly trying to get away from the crowds to be with the Father and who was prepared to obey the will of the Father even when he was about to be arrested and sent to his death. The unspoken clues in the story and therefore the way that we know God's glory is through prayer and faith. So, we know that we can experience these glimpses of his glory now 
through prayer and faith. We know that Jesus wants us to see his glory and crucially, we should want to as well because this is how we are changed and rewired to God. Whenever I spend any length of time contemplating God's glory, I often find myself thinking, wow, I am so boring. Who, who'd have thought? I'm so boring. But it's true, the more time I spend in God's glory, the more I resonate with that passage in Psalm 8 that says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? And it is so refreshing to be caught up in God's goodness and remember that, you know, I'm not all that and that our stuff and all our worries, yes, they're important and God cares, but also they're temporary. And there's no point in me passing that on as head knowledge because it will leave you flat, but you need to start experiencing God's glory in order to be liberated by that truth. Yet too often, we let stuff get in the way of this. For Martha, it seems like she let false identities get in the way for a moment, even though she knew Jesus as her close friend. Verse 39 reads, Martha, the sister of the dead man. And it's funny they use this description. We know who Martha is. We've already been introduced. This whole story is about her and her siblings. And yet now, in case you weren't sure, it's Martha, the sister of the dead man. It's immediately the defining feature of the way she is perceived. And it's not really that surprising that for the time it was written that a woman would be referred to by the men in her household. But it is significant that her suffering not only defines her, but it clearly also defines her expectations of Jesus. When Jesus says, take away the stone, you'd think that the person that has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah is gonna go, get ready for this, guys. But instead, she's standing there saying, Jesus, it's, it's going to stink. Don't open that. Isn't that ultimately just so relatable for us, though? We let so much get in the way so often. For Martha, it's a false identity. What is it for you? I'm not going to sit here and speculate if you use those unspoken clues of prayer and faith soon enough you'll know what that barrier is. But we must allow God's promises to define us, God's glory to change us. Because it does have a lasting effect on us. Thank God, right? At least for me, because I know that through experience, my expectations of God don't change just through my own willpower. I remember recently, well, I say recently, it was two years ago, but I remember being at a worship night once and it was brilliant. I encountered God, what more can you want? And at the end of it, when it was finished, um, I went over to my friend as the lights had come up and everyone was starting to chat. And so I went over just to say something like, hi, how are you? And instead I opened my mouth and out tumbled the words, I love the Lord. And I was like, what? And she was like, 
Yeah, same. Because it was a worship night after all. But then, as much as I tried to open my mouth to say anything normal in that moment, all I could say for 45 minutes was, I love the Lord and God is so good. I, f I physically couldn't say any other sentences. And the reason I'm telling you that is because I didn't expect God to hang around for any longer than I specifically asked him to. But now, through experience, my expectation of God has changed. And that was just experiencing a tiny bit of his glory. And this isn't just something that happens to certain people. Jesus prayed for all believers and he clearly wants everyone to share in this, including people that don't yet know God. See, even in her grief, Mary is a vehicle for salvation so that more people get to see this demonstration of God's glory. If we go back to verse 31, it talks about how quick she was to go to Jesus. And she didn't go ready to evangelize or even make declarations of faith or pretend she had it together at all. She had nothing positive to say to Jesus. She just knew that she had to physically follow him. That act was an act of trust, banking on a friendship and a love, even though everything was up in the air. But a whole group of people saw that act and followed her, following Jesus. Ultimately, Mary led them to Jesus and salvation and God's glory. So you don't have to put on a brave face if because of your circumstances right now, you're grappling with this idea that we will see the glory of God. The simple act of showing up, telling God how you feel, expressing that with him is way more significant than you may realize because God is always loving to us. In his book, God Untamed, Johannes Hartel describes how God's glory is rooted in God's love for us. And I'm gonna read out a quote from the book and it's a little bit long, but I love it. So you'll have to bear with me. He says, everything revolves around the simple statement that God is love. Love is not just a feeling, love is also an act. What kind of love would it be that never gave gifts, never complimented, caressed or invited the loved one in? And it is the nature of beauty to want to show itself. Certainly joy does not force anyone to join in the celebration. Love that compels a kiss is no true love. And even watching the most beautiful sunset, no one can be forced to acknowledge God. God created the world to share in his joy. God chose a people to reveal his whole being to them. Why? Because he is clear that his glory is the most important, the most captivating and praiseworthy thing that exists. 
So I'm gonna finish in just a second, but I hope you're beginning to agree or at least see that this statement is true, that God's glory is the most important, the most captivating, and the most praiseworthy thing that exists. And we're gonna praise and remember Jesus through receiving communion together, which Naomi is gonna explain to us in just a moment. But as you receive communion, why not use prayer and faith and invite God to reveal to you his glory, the presence of God combined with the visible character of God, his goodness, his mercy, his face, his beauty. These are good things to receive and will shape your life if you allow them to. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna do that. We're gonna go and receive communion together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, Jesus. We thank you for your sacrifice. And God, we ask to receive your glory now. We thank you that your presence is here already. And we just ask for more in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.